Good evening, guys. My name's Tamara, and I'll be reading the Bible tonight. Um, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 44. And this is about the commencement of Jesus' ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, 
You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, he tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Joel's. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been working through uh, Luke 1 to 5 over this first term, and we've reached this section uh, tonight. There's a bit of an announce, uh, a bit of an outline rather than an announcement on the back of the bulletin. That may be helpful as we work through this passage together. Um, but I'm going to pray for us firstly that God would really help us above all we need uh, to pray and ask that he would uh, work by his spirit, that we might understand his word and want to apply it in our lives. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you have given us your word, which you've designed to uh, challenge us and rebuke us and comfort us and lead us uh, to salvation through your Son. We thank you that in Jesus uh, we have uh, one who came for us, uh, who in his own mission sets out uh, to save those who would place their trust in him, but also sets the template for how his followers might live too. And so we pray tonight as we think about his mission and ours that you might uh, encourage us again and help us to think clearly about our place serving in your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on August 24th last year that the Australian Olympics team arrived home from Rio after their time there. Um, they were greeted in a rousing reception by the Prime Minister. Uh, there was also the Governor-General Peter Cosgrove as they met the chef de mission Kitty Chiller and the flag bearers for Australia, Anna Mears, who had been the opening ceremony, and then Kim Brennan in the closing ceremony. And they all arrived in this specially prepared Qantas hangar at Sydney Airport uh, to be received by their family and friends and lauded for their efforts over in Rio. Uh, Chloe Esposito was one of the many athletes that arrived there. You may remember she won uh, the modern pentathlon event, which no Australian had previously ever won. And as she reflected on her situation, she said, well, it was still hitting home. It's great to be back and to reflect on it with family and friends. In fact, there was great incentive to win a medal, as it turned out, because you got sent home business class rather than in the plebs section. So she was obviously sitting up front in their Qantas charter flights. But, you know, that was just the beginning of it. Uh, they had parades that started just a few days later. It started at the Opera House steps in Sydney, and they went round to every capital city in Australia. A uh, day of celebrations in Sydney started really early. They were received at uh, Admiralty House in Sydney by the Governor-General again, for going on to the lunchtime celebrations on the steps. And Kim Brennan, uh, who was the gold, mini, uh, gold medal winning rower uh, who got to carry the flag at the end of the Olympics, said, you know, this is a really big part of it for the Olympians. That reception, that acceptance as we turn home, the public welcome home parades, they're a huge part of the Olympic experience. And each of these 
um, parades that followed in that week, um, you know, some, if not all, of the 422 people that wore green and gold uh, were appeared before, appearing before the crowds. Now, I think as we um, consider that kind of such a warm reception to people that went and did their best in sport, we come to this passage in Luke 4 this evening, and we see Jesus' reception in his hometown of Nazareth. And it's so contrasting. There is no red carpet that is rolled out for Jesus. In fact, it seems to be the opposite. But running right through this section as he goes to his hometown, firstly of Nazareth, and then to a second town in Galilee, Capernaum, is a much greater and important theme. And that is, what is Jesus' mission? What has he come to do regardless of the reception that he might receive from people? And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What was the focus? What was the focus of Christ's ministry? And as we'll reflect at the end, what does that mean for us as we serve? Well, that brings me to the first point. Point one on your outline. Uh, The first thing in Jesus' priority list is to fulfill Scripture. Point one, to fulfill Scripture. So notice again verse 16, how things kick off in Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now those uh, two key verses there, verses 18 and 19, are a quote. Uh, from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And Christ's announcement of their fulfillment in verse 21 would have been stunning. I'm sure you would have been able to hear a pin drop. This is a prophecy that had been given some 700 years earlier. Jesus stands up and reads a passage they would have known well and said, I'm it. This is fulfilled in your hearing today. And of course, all eyes are on him at that point. It's no wonder that people read this passage and think, well, this must be a blueprint for his mission. This is what Jesus is about. Now, before we come to analyzing that blueprint in a moment, I think we've got to understand a little bit of the setting here as he makes this announcement. See, Luke has deliberately moved this event forward in his gospel. Uh, Matthew and Mark put his visit to Nazareth much later because it did occur later. But as Jesus starts his public ministry, Luke wants to focus in on his hometown to begin with. In fact, he does acknowledge that, did you notice, in verses 14 and 15. He says, well, Jesus has already been to a number of towns in Galilee. He's been preaching at various synagogues already. So this is not the first place he's been to. In fact, as we get down to verse 23, the people in Nazareth know at least that he's already been to Capernaum, another town just a a day's walk away. And so there's that background. Jesus has been out there doing things, uh, uh, performing amazing miracles, speaking with authority. And as he comes to his hometown in Nazareth, he uh, quotes this section in Isaiah 61. Now, what about this section? Well, it involves the task of proclaiming a message, doesn't it? And the message, notice, is to the poor. I think as soon as we hear that, uh, we think, well, uh, only to the poor? Do we mean just those who are in relative poverty? Is this not a message for all people? I think uh, throughout Luke's gospel, and especially in the Old Testament that comes beforehand, uh, the word poor has a much broader meaning than just those who didn't have so much money, as we might define it today. Uh, It often included those who were afflicted, 
those who are open to God because of their humble circumstances, those who realize their need, who were willing to hear and respond, who were not proud, who did not see themselves as having no need of God's help. And so Jesus is saying to such people, he is proclaiming release from oppression, recovery of sight. Now, the background to that imagery, if we ask, well, what do these phrases mean? Are we to take them literally? Are they figurative? Well, the, the, the final phrase is the key, the year of the Lord's favor. It's a term that was often used in the Old Testament, and um, usually they called it the year of jubilee. It was a year in which all debts were forgiven. Leviticus 25 outlines that year of jubilee in a big way, and it was every 50th year. So every 50 years, um, if you had lost claim to your family property, you would receive it back. You would go back to your family property. You would live with your clan if you had moved away. And so if a Jew had been forced to sell their land because of debts or some other um, hardship had happened, they would receive their land back on the 50th year. If they had sold themselves into slavery, as it were, or as hired workers at least amongst other Jewish people, then again, they were freed from their oppression are able to go back as a freed person and live with their clan or family. Now, that year of Jubilee, therefore, initiated a new start for people. This is an amazing fresh start. Uh, Everything that had gone before in the previous 49 years could be overturned at that point. And Jesus is offering that new start as well. He's offering this deliverance that that uh, year of the Lord's favor meant for people as they heard it. Now, the the phrase restoration of sight probably referred to his miraculous healings. He certainly did restore sight. But it's also part of the spiritual work of his salvation, of moving people from darkness into light, of opening their blind eyes to the truth that he is the Christ and that they had trust in him. And so Jesus was functioning, if you like, in this section, both as a prophet, somebody announcing God's plan, the day has come, the year of the Lord's favor has arrived, but also as the one who fulfills it. I am the Christ. I am the one who can accomplish this. Now, having said to the crowd that is there in the synagogue that he is the deliverer of Isaiah 61, to their amazement, as we're told, sadly, things soon turn sour, don't they? After such a great start, it seems, you might expect that they would really be encouraged, that they would welcome him home as their hometown hero. But it's not the case. Those in Nazareth, they they seem to doubt him. They say in verse 22, well, he's just the son of Joseph, isn't he? What they're inferring is, well, look, we know his family. His brothers and sisters live here with us. And his father was a carpenter. Who is he to be saying these things suddenly? You know, dishonor from those who know you most can be very hard. Now, in a more flippant example, I'm a, a bit of a cricket tragic, and um, these days I just watch matches, but for many years I wasted my whole Saturdays um, playing, you know, five or six hours of cricket, hoping that I'd have that one good moment. And um, there were a couple. Uh, I never rose to any heights, but there was one day where bowling as a leg spinner, I got six wickets for three runs. And one of those six wickets included one of my high school teachers from just a couple of years earlier. That was a great day. And, you know, I I was excited. I thought, look, I basically won us the match. I should be fated as the hero of the day. But all my friends in the team just wanted to come up and tell me what a fluke artist I was, that uh, they were resented the fact that I'd got even one wicket. And, you know, in the matches that followed, they didn't give me more than one or two overs. It changed nothing. 
And there I was thinking, you know, I was Shane Warne, except for the blonde hair and the generous physique. You know, this was my moment to impress. But no such honour was given. It was a bit crushing. Now, look, unlike my unimportant slight, the prejudice here that the people of Nazareth have against Jesus is blinding them to the truth, to his glory. I mean, Jesus is not looking for fame. He's not wanting them to say, oh, you're so impressive. He's wanting genuine followers who realize their need of God, who are willing to recognize that the Christ is right before them and to repent and believe. And so they have a choice. But they just seem to doubt him. They think somehow he's risen above his station in life. The amazement turns to doubt. But then did you notice not long after, there's actual anger. They are so angry with him, they want to kill him. You think, how did that happen? How did we go from being amazed to fury? Well, it's what happens next, isn't it? It's what Jesus says to them from verse 23. Notice how he goes on and talks uh, in this common proverb or wise saying. He says, well, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. By which he means with the verses that follow, look, we've heard of these miracles you've been doing in Capernaum. So they're effectively saying to Jesus, look, we want you to prove yourself here. Let's see a demonstration of your power now. We've heard you've done these things, but you prove yourself. And Jesus thinks, well, they're simply dishonoring me. And he likens it to the dishonor that's happened century after century for the prophets of Israel. And he quotes them in verses 25 to 27, two of the most famous ones in Elijah and Elisha. Why does he pick on these guys? Well, one, yes, they are arguably the most famous in the Old Testament, but two, he points to a really bad time in the nation. I mean, it was in the pits at that point. The northern kingdom had disobeyed God completely. They'd all become idolaters. They were Baal worshippers. No one was listening to the living God. Elijah goes to call people to repentance and turn them back. And there are great miracles that happen, but so often it was actually to Gentiles, as Jesus points out. What he's saying to these people, or how they're hearing it, would have been, you're saying we're like the worst generation ever, that we are spiritually dead. More than that, you're now telling us that Gentiles are more worthy of your miracles than we are, just like Elijah and Elisha did. How dare you come back home here and you tell us that we're the worst? Well, Jesus is presenting an opportunity really for them to respond rightly or to reject him. And sadly, they're going to reject him. They do what you did to false prophets. In Deuteronomy, if there was a false prophet among the people of God, they would be thrown off a cliff and killed. And so they perceive Jesus that way. They drag him out to the edge of the town. They threaten to kill him. And he walks away. The opportunity for blessing is lost. More importantly, the opportunity to respond rightly to God has passed. And that brings me to a second point. Point two on your outline. So what was the focus of Christ's ministry? Firstly, to fulfill scripture, but secondly, in doing so, to proclaim the kingdom of God. To proclaim the kingdom of God. So notice what happens from verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people... They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. I mean, you'd have to say there's a bit of a contrast here that Luke's painting for us. And Nazareth, his hometown, rejection, Capernaum, amazement, excitement of Jesus' presence. It's only about a day's walk away, as I mentioned before. It's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. It's a seaside town, about 15,000 people at that time in Jesus' day. Jesus goes into the synagogue. Notice the same pattern again. Go to where the believers are gathered, present the scriptures, point to himself as the Christ that fulfills them. Jesus probably chose a passage from the prophets like he did in Nazareth. We're just not told. But there are two responses, aren't there? Firstly, the people are impressed. They're amazed at his authoritative teaching. It says something about the teaching they usually receive. Secondly, there's the response of the man with the impure spirit. Uh, you know, this second response, which identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God, perhaps gives even more weight to Christ's authority, his identity. Not only does the demon correctly identify Jesus, but in fear that he will be destroyed, um, is um, saying to Jesus, you know, identifying him before the crowd, and in a demonstration of his authority, he breaks the power of Satan over this man, removes the demon. And of course, that just lent more weight to the teaching that Jesus has already given, demonstrated the power of this king of God's kingdom. But hang on a second, you might say. Let's back up for a moment. You know, what are demons or impure spirits? I mean, aren't these things just things that appear in horror movies these days? With medical science in this day and age, are we supposed to accept such things? Maybe this person, you know, just had a mental illness of some sort. I think it's worth addressing this point. I think firstly we need to say clearly that the Christian worldview acknowledges that there is an unseen realm around us that contains both good and evil. That God as creator has his messengers, his angels that um, deliver messages on his behalf who are ministering spirits to those who are his people. But on the other hand, Satan who is a fallen angel has his own minions if you like who are alternatively called evil spirits, impure spirits, demons. But secondly, as agents of Satan, they seek to deceive humans, to turn people away from their trust in God, often towards idolatry instead. And the Bible also affirms that a person can be possessed by a demon. That is, they can act or speak under the control of an unseen spirit. Now, we're also reminded in several places in Scripture that Christians are not to fear this unseen realm at all, that demons actually tremble before God, the one who is all-powerful. And indeed, they recognize Jesus as not only the Son of God, but their future judge, and they tremble before him. And Christ often cast out demons from people during his ministry as a sign of his authority that pointed again to his speech and the words that he was offering. They demonstrated his authority as the king of God's kingdom. Now, having seen that, from verse 38, he's been at the synagogue, he's cast out the evil spirit, but then he goes on to Jesus, uh, to Simon and Andrew's family home. These are two of his disciples, of course. Uh, this seems to be Simon and Andrew's parents' place. 
In fact, much of Jesus' ministry was based at this house uh, in these years in Galilee. And he goes in and Peter's mother-in-law is unwell with a fever. He heals her and then suddenly people have worked out, probably hearing what had happened earlier at the synagogue, people are flocking to this house in Capernaum. Now Mark's account and the parallel account, he says that the whole town showed up at the door basically. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus. People were bringing those that needed healing. He cast out demons again. He healed people of many sicknesses. But there's an issue with all of this. You know, we see here that Jesus um, is in danger of becoming reduced to a traveling healer rather than being able to get out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And as the gospel unfolds, uh, we see more and more that many crowds will flock to Jesus to be healed, but very few people will actually want to repent and believe. Very few people will actually want to follow Jesus as their Lord and King. And so unsurprisingly, um, feeling that pressure, no doubt, Jesus gets up at dawn the next day. He knows what's coming the next morning. There'll be more crowds yet again. And so he goes out to a solitary place to pray, escape the people. And as he expects, they come after him and eventually find him. And they're trying to plead with him to come back to Capernaum. Look, you know, stay in our town for a few weeks. Deal with all the issues we've got. We've got so many others that want to see you. You can imagine the conversations. And it's in this context that makes Christ's words in verses 43 and 44 so crucial for us to understand his priority. And Jesus says to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Notice what he's doing here. He's asserting that he must move on, that everyone needs to hear the news. He can't be constrained by the people and their agenda to stay in their town and deal with the things that they would like him to deal with. You can't underestimate the problem of these following crowds for his mission. As things move on, the Galilean masses are going to have several agendas for Jesus. The first is physical needs. Uh, They want people healed. Understandably, I'm sure we would have rushed there too. They want the food that he sometimes provides. Later, they want to make him a king by force. They'll take him and place him on the throne if they could. They'd love to get more freedom from their Roman oppressors. Jesus could be all these things and more for them. But Jesus has a mission. He's been sent by the Father. He has his own agenda. He's not going to be swayed by them. He's calling people to repentance and faith. They need to receive the deliverance, the year of the Lord's favor. He is the Christ that brings it. It's far more than them just getting their felt needs moment by moment. Now, look, I guess you know, none of us know what it means to be mobbed moment by moment as we step out of our door, open our front door like some pop stars or movie stars perhaps face. I'm sure you'll have seen footage of people trying to deal with that or read articles about their struggle to live a normal life because of their fame and can't go down to a local shop because they're hounded by people and cameras are shoved in their face and people are surveying their home all the time and rummaging through their bins and all these crazy kind of things. I mean, arguably the most famous example of all this uh, was in 1997 um, when the paparazzi famously became the subject of a lot of public scorn in Britain after Princess Diana and her boyfriend, Dodi Al-Fayed, died in a car accident in Paris. They were trying to escape photographers. Apparently, they'd been 
hounded as they drove along and guys on motorbikes were weaving in and out of the traffic trying to get up next to the car, get a snap of them that they could sell and make money out of. And of course, as the story emerged later, it was a little more complex than simply being chased. The chauffeur was intoxicated and that explained why several people died in what followed. But I think the impression still burns in a lot of people's memories that this only happened because they were being chased, because they were being hounded, because they couldn't be themselves and pursue what they were seeking to do. Now, look, it goes without saying um, that the situation was very different in Jesus' day. But I think we need to understand that kind of um, image that we know in our modern day context to realize the pressure that was upon him. As pretty soon in the Gospels, Jesus can't even go into a town openly. He's so hounded by the crowds. He's forced to do his ministry out in the wilderness areas. The people have to come out to him so that he might preach or heal. And that was a threat to his message, his proclaiming of the good news that he needed to get out to all the people of Israel. And that brings us to a third and final point. Point three on your outline, the church's focus today. Look, how do we apply all that? What are the principles that we can draw from that as we think about the church's mission, how we should serve and take after Christ and his work? I think part of the problem for churches today is understanding what the kingdom of God is. It's become one of those rubbery terms and how we might extend that kingdom. See, for some Christians today, it's viewed as believers having more influence in the community. You know, if Christians can raise up to positions of power in the local council or in government departments, or better still, if Christian churches can run really impressive large-scale social programs, social justice programs that, you know, the secular authorities lord and say, wow, isn't that wonderful? Look at these wonderful charitable works that the church is doing. Then, hey, we'll think we're having such an influence. God's kingdom is growing. But you see, that is not how it works. That is not how God's kingdom is manifest look it's great for christians to be salt and light in the world it's wonderful if god elevates christians to positions of influence that we can do good for those around us no doubt but god's kingdom and his reign or rule over this world indeed this whole universe is seen in other ways you know it's a reign which has two stages on earth it's ushered in by jesus starting his ministry as we see tonight but it's firmly established through his death and resurrection, which we're about to celebrate at Easter. It's at that point that sin and death and the devil are defeated. But of course, the kingdom of God won't be seen in its full power and glory. It won't be fully consummated until Jesus returns at his second coming. It's then when Jesus comes in all his glory that he will remove all opposition to him as king permanently. At that point, the kingdom of God will be seen in all its power. So what happens in the meantime? How is the kingdom of God seen? How does it grow? Well, it's seen in the lives of individual believers who submit themselves to Jesus as king. As a person places their faith in him and then lives in obedience to his word, God's kingdom is seen in those that are following and worshipping his king. And how do we add and see that kingdom grow? Well, one by one, as people come to faith in the Lord Jesus and enter that kingdom too. And of course, the sharing of that gospel will be accompanied by good works. We'll certainly love our community. We'll share and seek to serve them in various ways because God's grace will have had such effect in our life that we will want to 
just overflow with concern for those around us, even as we share the good news. Now, see, if we misunderstand the nature of God's kingdom and how it grows, then the message of deliverance from Isaiah 61 can be misapplied. It can be understood only in a very literal sense. You know, some believers will say, as they have in the last few decades, look, what the Christian church should be doing is helping the poor, releasing prisoners, uh, helping people recover from blindness. You need to be doing these things rather than evangelism. People will say, well, you know, Christians have to view Jesus' mission as being primarily about social justice. And so Christians should be loving their neighbours, serving their communities by providing services. They should start schools. They should start orphanages. They should do drug and alcohol rehab schemes. They should provide temporary housing. They should offer loans. They should look to do legal assistance. They should start retirement villages. Now, look, the Christian church for the last 20 centuries has done all these things and more. And these are wonderful things, great acts of service and love. But these all-consuming nature of such social justice or mercy ministries often means that the sole mission of the church becomes these things. And somehow evangelism and making disciples drops off. We've got to be very careful that making disciples is not lost. The problem is that secular governments in Australia and other Western countries love it when churches just focus on charity. In fact, they'll give you money towards Baptist care or Anglicare or Catholic care or Uniting care. They'll love to see you run all kinds of programs that can serve the community. But don't speak about Jesus or we'll withdraw your money. Don't do that evangelism stuff. Just do good deeds. That's all we want from you. So the problem is that social change was not Christ's primary focus. Rather, he wanted to change individual lives from the inside out so that their society would change as those people live new lives of love, where they now concern themselves with other people and show compassion on their community. You see, his final words to his disciples in the Great Commission was not, go and start Baptist care, as wonderful as that organization is. His words are, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, please don't hear me wrongly tonight. I'm not suggesting for a moment that all those wonderful social pursuits are not things that individual Christians or indeed churches should give themselves to. They should. It's a case of both and, not either or. But so often what has happened is one becomes more important than the other drops off. See, the Apostle Paul highlighted our need to engage in good works as well. Just as important, Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10 Paul writes, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. It's not either or, it's both and. And as a church, we've been thinking hard about this in the last four or five years. You know, we did a big brainstorm on this at our church camp in 2013, and people like yourselves gave us 76 different ideas of how we might engage in our community and serve them in different ways. And we've been working through some of those. I mean, we already do certain events that are seeking to reach out and serve needs in our community. We run a playtime. We do lots of things that support settlers, refugees to the country. And we offer an art class for those who can come along in their senior years. And we're now looking to start an English 
as a second language program, ESL program to start in the next month. We're doing that because as we've reviewed all the options as a church, we're really known in our area as a church that focuses on refugees. Oh, you're the refugee church. You're the one that has all those services from different language groups. Yes, we are. You know, you really should be in that space of serving more and more those people. And that's what we want to do. That's our next step, at least. And there may be many others that follow. But I want to say to you at the same time, we've really got to be about proclaiming the good news. That's why we went out this afternoon for two hours knocking on doors. That's why we did that last Sunday as well, to present the gospel to people, to have people hear the good news that Jesus has come. The year of the Lord's favor is to be proclaimed. He offers us salvation. That's the most wonderful thing to hear. Of course, we're inviting them as well to our Easter services. We're going to have services here. There'll be the combined one with the G4G at the Uni at Hope Theatre, aptly named, in uh, May 7th in a few weeks. We'll be looking at those one question for God issues. And we're doing that so that we might have an opportunity to invite friends along. Better still, you could be just engaging with your work colleague or your friend at Uni or wherever you are. Uh, to explain the good news of Jesus with them. But by all means, invite them along. There's so much work to be done, isn't there? There's, there's 200,000 people in the Illawarra. There's at best 5% that go to church. There are tens of thousands of people that have not yet understood the gospel of grace. We want to love these people and serve them, but we want to share that good news with them so that they might enter the kingdom of God, enjoy the new life that we know through faith in Christ. Let me encourage you this week, this month especially, to pray for friends, to invite friends, to bring people along, to share the good news with them, but also to display the love that God has given you as you care for them and serve their needs. Let's serve God in both word and deed. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have somebody who is not only our saviour, but one who had a clear mission from you to share your wonderful favour, the deliverance that can be offered through him, the Christ who had come, who had laid down his life and called people to repentance and faith. Lord, help us to know that message well, to be ready to share it whenever you give us opportunity. Lord, we know that that message is life-transforming. The result will be that we want to love and show concern for people in all manner of practical ways, that we may serve the community around us as well as share this message of hope. Help us as a community of believers here at WBC to do just that. Encourage us, challenge us in these weeks ahead with all the opportunities that lie ahead at Easter and beyond. Help us to take hold of them for your glory, we ask. Amen.